Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Antioch. It's so good to see you guys. My name is Linda Van Borst, and I am one of the pastors here at Antioch. And it is a joy to be together this morning. For those of you who had spring break this week, I hope you had a lovely spring break. And thank you to Marsha for reading Psalm 32 for us. Our reading for this fourth Sunday of Lent. Have you ever had something exciting happen to you? Something that you can't help but talk about? I think we all have this instinct to talk about something that is awesome. For example, Shimsham. Have you guys eaten at Shimsham? It's the food truck at the yacht club and it serves the most delicious Israeli street food. Or maybe it's a great movie or a book or a podcast or a game or a trail or a lake. You get the point. Well, in our psalm for today, Psalm 32, David can't stop talking about something incredible that has happened to him. He is overjoyed and he wants everyone in the world to know about it. And after talking about it over and over and over again, he wrote a psalm about his unexpected happiness. But what brought him to this place? Great question. I invite you to join me in Psalm 32. There's Bibles in the seats in front of you. Psalm 32, verse 1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and whose spirit is no deceit, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Here, David lets us in on the reason for his excitement. He is over the moon because honestly, we're doing some congregation participation. Drum roll, please. Drum roll, please. He is over the moon because he has been forgiven. Honestly, it falls a little flat for me too. You're like, uh, okay. Um, Until David lets us in on the story. And to figure out what is going on, I invite you to flip back to 2 Samuel 11. At this point in the story, David, the same guy who wrote this psalm, is king of Israel. And he's just come off a long line of victories. He's united the 12 tribes of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant has been returned. Jerusalem is named as Israel's capital. And it also goes by City of David as a nice nickname. And he has a long list of military successes. We read that winter has finally passed. And we know the feeling of winter finally leaving. We experienced it this week. But as the warmer weather has returned, the Israelites have returned to the battlefield. The troops are out fighting, but not David. David has decided to sit this one out and is at home in the palace, even though as king, he's supposed to be out with his troops. We'll see in 2 Samuel 11:2 it says, "One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing." So we see that David wakes up in the evening, strange, and climbs up on his roof. And while he's up there, he sees something he shouldn't have seen. I've heard this story many times and maybe you have too, but I want to specifically draw your attention to two things. First, 
To us Oregonians, we don't climb up on our roofs very often unless we're getting rid of an ice dam or trying to get rid of a woodpecker. But in the global east, the roof was often used as an extra living space, and more specifically, a bathing space. Because they did not have running water, people would collect water on the rooftop, and when it rained, collect it and use it to bathe. Because of this, in the east, it was the custom to not look on your neighbor's rooftop. In other words, don't look into your neighbor's bathroom. We still have that understanding, right? <laughs> but here we notice that David was doing something he shouldn't have been doing. He was up on his rooftop. Second, back in those days, there were no binoculars and there were no drones. So when we read that David saw a woman bathing, it meant she was close by meaning this woman was most likely his neighbor. Sure, people have neighbors, but who would you expect to be the neighbor of the king? The king's most trusted people, meaning David didn't just see a woman bathing. He saw the wife of one of his friends, and this friend was named Uriah. 2 Samuel 38, or 23, 8, and 39. These are the names of David's mighty warriors and Uriah the Hittite, same Uriah. In this verse, we learn that Uriah was a part of an exclusive section of David's army known as David's mighty warriors. This would be like the special ops team, 37 of the best fighters in David's army, the best of the best. These men had been loyal to David for a long time, possibly since David tried to escape Saul many years before and Uriah is still doing battle in the name of King David. But peeping Tom David is filled with desire for Uriah's wife, a woman named Bathsheba. Back at the palace, David called for a guard, gathered some information, and sent his guards to get her. Do you know what we would call that today? She was abducted. She was taken hostage, hostage by force and brought to the palace. Then David power raped her and she became pregnant. In case you think I'm getting a little carried away with my reading of this text, I want you to know that John Piper also agrees with me. Check it out. <laughs> John Piper says, we are not exaggerating to use the word rape for David's abuse of power and the indulgence of his sinful lust in the way he took Bathsheba. And David Garland, professor of theology at Baylor University says, artists and movies have contorted this biblical story, leading us to believe that David was dazzled by a gold digging bathing bell intent on arousing his desire so as to ensnare him. But this is not the case. Quick aside about this story. Growing up, this story was used to teach teenage girls to keep their bodies covered and to dress modestly because what happened to Bathsheba is what happens to girls when they aren't modest. But I wanna recognize and offer a response to that purity culture narrative. Women are not responsible for men's actions. People are responsible for their own actions. What happened in this story is not Bathsheba's fault. If we call what happened here adultery, then we project blame on both David and Bathsheba. 
but the Bible does not assert this idea. No sin is ascribed to Bathsheba in this text. Instead, in this story, we learn how much God hates rape. They didn't have pregnancy tests back then, <clears throat> back then, which makes me wonder how much time passed before Bathsheba was certain that she was pregnant. I suspect a few months. And we find that Bathsheba sends word to the king that she is pregnant. Well, when David learns that Bathsheba is pregnant, he frantically tries to cover it up. He concocts a plan to bring Uriah home from battle hoping that Uriah and Bathsheba have sex and David can be off the hook. After all, 23andMe wasn't a thing back then. But Uriah didn't bite. In fact, I suspect Uriah might have had an inkling that something was going on. After all, when David initially sent for Bathsheba, he didn't text her and he didn't go get her himself. Instead, he told a person who told a person who told a person to send some guards, meaning there were a lot of people who knew what was going on. And maybe Uriah was in the know because instead of sleeping with his beautiful wife, we learn he slept at the king's door. I imagine David was panicking. His plan was backfiring as it usually does when someone is trying to cover up something. So David notches up his plan and brings out some drinks. Seriously, both David and Uriah get drunk. But still, Uriah does not go to be with Bathsheba. Instead, he sleeps at the door of the king's house with the servants again, then returns to the battlefield in the morning. So David takes his plan to the next level and he sends Uriah back to battle with a letter to deliver to the army commander. The message of the letter can be read in 2 Samuel eleven fifteen. Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. And sure enough, Uriah is killed in battle. I want to pause and invite you to notice your reaction in this story. What are you struggling with? What questions does this story raise for you? Maybe you are wondering, I thought this guy was a man after God's own heart. Or maybe you're asking, why is power so easily abused? This pattern has been repeated for thousands of years and is still happening. Why is the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement still happening? The list of men who have been caught using their power to sexually gratify their own desires at the expense of women is painstakingly long. Why is this still a thing? Or maybe you are wondering what place of desperation a person has to get to in order to come up with such a plan. Or maybe you're empathizing with Bathsheba and you're heartbroken for her. She is living a nightmare. Or maybe you're thinking about humanity in general and wondering, why is it so hard to admit when you're wrong? Or maybe you're wondering, why is this story in the Bible? And these are all good questions. As you might imagine, David was floundering under the weight of his consequences for his decisions. 
We can read a prayer he wrote during this time in Psalm 51. And David expresses this same idea in our psalm, Psalm 32, today. Verses 3 through 4, he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through, through the groaning, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. David compares the pain he is feeling to that of broken bones. Deep, excruciating pain. His pride has been shattered. I wonder if he's hit rock bottom. And I wonder if you've ever been there. I imagine he was wondering if he could go on. <laughs> Would his people forgive him? What about his other wives? What about God? Would God forgive him? Even though I kind of want God to cover David in leprosy and require that he be castrated, I can also imagine how overwhelming his shame must be. But then we see that something drastically changes. In verse 5, David tells us what has changed. Then I let it all out. I said, I'll come clean about my failures to God. And suddenly, the pressure was gone. My guilt dissolved. My sin disappeared. Despite the severity of David's evil acts, God offers forgiveness to the repentant and humbled David. I think there's something to be learned from David about what true confession looks like. In the past few years, I've stumbled upon some really good podcasts and books about how to make a good apology. Brene Brown has a two-part podcast called How to Apologize and Why It Matters. Harriet Lerner also has some incredible insight to offer. But Duke Kwan, a pastor in Washington, D.C., offers a nice summary. He provides five elements that are essential to an apology. You'll see how to apologize. First, begin by expressing your sorrow. I'm sorry. Then own your guilt. I was wrong. But don't stop there. Name the specific wrongs. I did X. Name the impact this has had. I hurt you. And make amends. What can I do? In David's conversation with God in Psalm 32, we see he does this pretty well. He begins by expressing his sorrow, I have sinned. And then he owns his guilt. Your judgment against me is just. He names specific wrongs, rebellion, shedding of blood. He names the impact, I have done what is evil. And he makes amends. I will teach your ways to rebels. He does a pretty good job, although he goes a little light when naming the impact of his evil, in my opinion. When it comes to apologies, I imagine we all have experienced good ones and bad ones. In fact, there's a new term for a bad apology. It's called a non-pology. And instead of bringing healing to a relationship, instead it perpetuates pain and does more harm than good. Did you know there's actually a bingo game for bad apologies? Some of you might want to take a picture of this and save it for the holiday season to play with your spouses and siblings. Oh, so with your spouse or siblings, not multiple spouses. Anyway, <laughs> take a look at these bad examples of non-apologies. I'm sorry, but I say this respectfully. I was sick. You misheard me. I didn't mean it. 
I had a bad day. My timing was off. But I love you. This hurt me more than it hurt you. You're annoying. It was the PMS talking. I was drunk. I'm sorry you were offended. And then, you know, the free space. I just can't help myself. Or I had a bad childhood. I was distracted. Sorry if I, but you, if you would have just, what I meant was, you provoked me, my humor is edgy, sorry I was blunt, it was unfortunate, let's forgive and forget. I wonder if there is someone you need to apologize to or someone you need to re-apologize to because of a lackluster apology that aggravated the pain and did more harm than good. I would like to point out that David owed Bathsheba an apology also, but the Bible does not tell us if he did or did not do this. The shocking aspect of David is that throughout the scriptures, David is known as the anointed king, the favored one of God, the hope of Israel, the singer of the Psalms, and a man after God's own heart. And then we learn this story. The story of David and Bathsheba shatters a worldview in which saints and sinners can be neatly divided. Here, we are invited to enter the tension and come to know David both as saint and sinner, both as a predator and as a singer of the Psalms, both as a murderer and beloved by God, both as a sinner and as the forgiven. As we recognize this in David, we can't help but recognize the line of good and evil runs through each of us also. It becomes clear that although God could and did forgive David's sin, the evil David had unleashed continued to wreck death and destruction. An innocent baby suffered and died, along with the deaths of 18 other soldiers. Fighting erupted in David's family for generations. Bathsheba grieved multiple tragedies simultaneously. Before we move on, I want to consider Bathsheba for a few minutes. I wonder if anybody connects with the story of Bathsheba. I wonder how many of us carry stories of assault or abuse or rape. I wonder if there's anyone who has been made to feel that this was your fault, or if a story has been spun to make someone look better than he ought to. I wonder if there's anyone suffering trauma or abuse still. Or maybe as you consider this passage, you're wondering where God's grace for this victim is in this story. Or if God is going to make David pay for his evil acts. Maybe you're wondering if God can create anything good from the shambles David has made. Or maybe you're asking, is it good news that God forgives sinners? Are you wondering if people who commit certain types of sin should even receive forgiveness? As Bathsheba grieves the loss of her husband, 
her firstborn child, her home, her dreams, and everything about life she has known, she cries. And I'm so relieved that God hears her cry and does not let David's evil remain a secret. In 2 Samuel, we learn that God sends Nathan, a prophet, with a message to David. This is not the first time Nathan has come on the scene to visit David. The previous times have been um, visits filled with good news and blessings for promised military victories. I wonder if enough time had passed that David thought he had gotten away with what he did to Uriah and Bathsheba. Maybe David thought Nathan was showing up to bring him more good news. As they got to talking, Nathan tells a story. There were two men, one rich and one poor. The rich man had everything a a person could want and more, including huge flocks of sheep. And the poor man had one lamb that he loved. One day, a traveler dropped in unannounced to see the rich man, but he was too stingy to take an animal from his own flock to make a meal. So he took the poor man's lamb. We learn that David exploded in anger. He was appalled by this rich man's behavior. And then Nathan pulls the rug out from under David and says, you're the man. And David's secret is out of the bag. No longer did Bathsheba have to hold her secret to herself. Now Bathsheba could openly grieve her losses. I wonder who she confided in. David's other wives, the servants, her mother, we don't know. But until Nathan came, the possibility of sharing her pain and finding support from someone else was not possible. Not only did Nathan expose David for the evil he had done, but he also cleared Bathsheba of any responsibility she had for wrongdoing. If she had blamed herself for any of the evil that had befallen her family through David's actions, The prophet Nathan cleared her and made clear that David was to blame. None of the fault was hers. She was sinned against. The sin didn't go unrecognized, and we see here that David repented. A little time passed, and David went to comfort Bathsheba in this deep time of pain. I want to acknowledge that David's comfort is awkward and strange, and I hope there was reconciliation and restoration before he comforted her. But we learn that a child is conceived, who they name Solomon. Yes, the famous Solomon, who eventually becomes king of Israel, author of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and is a part of the genealogy of Jesus, meaning Bathsheba is the great, great, great grandmother of Jesus. Bathsheba is one of four women mentioned in the genealogy, and eventually the savior of the world is born through her. We don't have a pretty bow to tie around the story of Bathsheba, but we do see that God draws near to the brokenhearted and brings hope to those crushed in spirit, including Bathsheba. As we come to the end of our psalm, we find that God speaks to David in verse 8. As if forgiveness isn't enough, God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the ways you should go. I will counsel you and my loving eyes are on you. 
You know that feeling when you've done something wrong and you never, ever want to make that mistake again? Isn't it beautiful that God not only forgives David, but promises to help him as he moves forward? It sounds too good to be true. And in case David is skeptical, God repeats this same promise three times. I will instruct you. I will teach you. I will guide you. Even David's depth of evil will not cause God to give up on a person. This is who our God is. There is truly no one else like our God. As we enter into the fourth Sunday of Lent, I want to remind you that Lent is a season of self-reflection. It is a season where we purposefully pause and take inventory of ourselves to recognize our struggles and failures and to be reminded of our need of a savior. This psalm invites us to recognize our propensity to ignore our own sin. Then consider the damage sin can do to our relationship with God, self, others, and creation. When David tried to ignore his own sin, he was miserable and appalled by the evil he was capable of. But when he acknowledged his sin to God, he found a radical new way to live. David learned there's no sin too big for God to forgive and no grief too big for God to comfort. Like David, we too keep the things we are most ashamed of hidden and behave as though Jesus is only interested in saving and loving a romanticized version of ourselves. And so we offer him a version of ourselves that we think is our best self. But David exposes this lie and invites us to come clean to God and to others. As you go from here, I encourage you to notice if there are things you are trying to keep secret from God or keep secret from others. And instead of keeping them secret, the invitation is to pursue healing of the damage you have caused and find the great relief David is talking about in this psalm. This isn't a magic wand designed to take away the consequences of your sin, but God does promise to guide you through this important work of repentance. There is nothing better than being forgiven by others and being forgiven by God. There's nothing that even comes close. We easily get fooled to think that maybe a better job or a bigger house or a date with a certain person, getting into that specific school, passing that test, getting that raise, accomplishing that challenge or winning that award is going to satisfy our guilt and cover our shame. But here, David wants us to know that there is nothing better than God's forgiveness. There is no better blessing than being forgiven. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, you are a sinner, a great and desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner you are to a God who loves you. May we find our identity not in the good and bad things that we have done or that have been done to us, but instead come to know ourselves and one another as the forgiven. I leave you with David's words in the last verse of the psalm. Celebrate God, sing together, 
everyone. Why should we celebrate? Because we have a God who forgives us.